Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Journalist Karen Puglesi. In between jobs at the moment, perhaps you'll uh, have some news for our listeners about that soon. Hello. Hello. Good morning, Jesse Brown. Today on the show, BuzzFeed is going bust and Vice is headed for bankruptcy. Seems like the end of something, but what exactly? Also, the press has been reporting for years the name of a prominent and powerful man who was accused of abusing many Indigenous kids. But now it is suddenly illegal for us to say his name. Weird. Welcome back to Shortcuts, Karen, where we talk shit about the news. <laughs> Thank you, Jesse. This episode is brought to everyone by Leanne Ashworth, Annie McEachern, Kira Taylor, Zoe Schneider, Andy McJanet, Patrick Burns, Susan Chappelle, and Aurora. My name's Aurora, and I'm a musician, advocate, and public speaker in beautiful Banff, Alberta. I support Canada Land because Jesse, Matea, Archie, Karen, and all their guests are excellent company while I drive. They're always engaging, insightful, and happy to provide nuance that's hard to find anywhere else. Keep up the great work.
A company once valued at $5.7 billion might be headed for bankruptcy. That's according to various reports. Ice Media reportedly approaching that cliff edge while the change of finding a buyer remains on the table. BuzzFeed announcing today it is shutting down BuzzFeed News. Okay, Karen, bad news in our industry. Again, Vice Media, according to the New York Times, headed for bankruptcy unless they can find a buyer. They were once valued at $6 billion. They're now looking for a sale price of under a billion. Unbelievable. Do you find it unbelievable? Yeah. You know, um, from years ago when Vice started up and it was this hot thing. I know, I, I mean, you've done a lot of work on this, Jesse, and I know Vice was a little bit of a Ponzi scheme in some ways, but it seemed like they had gotten past that. They were doing some really good work. I remember being at APTN and feeling like they had kind of crushed us on a story about water where they'd gone back into First Nations communities where the government had promised to fix the water and, and check to see if it was really fixed and it wasn't, and it was smart journalism. Actually, when you tweeted a few days ago about BuzzFeed, I mentioned, well, what about Vice? Because I think, I like, I noticed that Vice Canada over the years is down to just a couple of reporters. Like, I, I don't know how many, like two, three, maybe? We were trying to count it. And I, I, we, I yeah, I think it's like two or three. And I, I, I'm trying to figure out at their heyday how many it was. But they had they had a $100 million deal, $50 million from Rogers. And uh, they had dozens and dozens of people on staff. And then they had all kinds of external, like, it was huge. And now it's, yeah, it's like Josh Visser and I think, you know, Mac and Anya. I think there's like three. I was there when Tom Hefhenner was shortly at Vice. And we're talking about partnering with them on a documentary for APTN. And I walked into the Vice Toronto offices and it was like this big building in Liberty Village with a, a big bar and cafeteria in the bottom. And I would not have predicted at that time that they were they were going to end up here. Here is what uh, Jonah Peretti said in shuttering BuzzFeed News, which is the other major announcement. Uh, and of course, there was a BuzzFeed News Canada and there was a Huffington Post Canada and there was a moment where it was really exciting and money was being piled in and there were lots of big offices and openings like that and jobs and not just jobs, but there were a lot of like cool news jobs and a sense that like a new generation of journalists was being paid properly to do cool work and that the audience was not like, you're not making news for your mom anymore. You know, like there was a moment. Anyhow, this is what Peretti said. He said that he has to accept that the big platforms won't provide the distribution or financial support required to support premium free journalism that is purpose-built for social media, the relationship between news publishers and social media is pretty much over. Mm -hmm. Karen, that sounds correct to me, and it's coming exactly at the moment that the relationship between social media tech companies and news in Canada is being enshrined into law. And we're and we're we're basically connecting the future of news in Canada to the relationship that Peretti says is over. Yeah. I mean I know you you've been a little bit involved in some lobbying around that. I was at the beginning and I just pulled out of it because because <laughs> of this. So that we could talk about yeah. it. Without having to disclose or have someone disclose for you because I forgot to there. But yes, I, I have been involved in the story as an active player, as a lobbyist, trying to get small digital newsrooms included if there's going to be this, this plan to basically tie our wagon to the star of big tech social media, you know, Facebook, also Google, not really social media. So that's a disclosure that's necessary here. But it is it is like interesting. I don't know. Are we like five, ten years behind the curve here that we're we're trying to like – fund news forevermore on, you know, fumes from big tech, just as 
Like Facebook's getting out of the news business. And, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. We can get into Vice, but for sure, what does this mean, these closures? What does it tell us about news? I mean, one thing for sure is I think Peretti's right here that like, how are we going to fund news? And for a moment it was, well, we're going to fund news by capitalizing on bulk viral traffic, you know, like if we millions and millions of clicks coming off of these social media platforms ultimately results in ad dollars on the sites that you link off to. If we can get priority on that algorithm, we can actually get enough money to fund real serious investigative news and Buzzfeed. I won't hear it. The listicle jokes like, BuzzFeed News did good shit, and, and they were a force to be reckoned with in their heyday. Yeah, they did. I mean, okay, so the business model like that BuzzFeed came up with that I was really interested in because I was working in broadcast and there was cord cutting going on, and there's always this talk about moving off of broadcast and online, and how are you going to support that when, you know, like, where's the money going to come from? And BuzzFeed was really a marketing company is how it started out, where it just made things go viral. And it made this like crazy content that was clickbait. And for some reason, it decided that it was going to open a, a, a news agency as well, which they didn't have to do. They could have just stayed a marketing company for all of their lives. And so there was a lot of driving from social media, from Facebook to BuzzFeed. Vice has a little bit of a different crazy story behind it that... Uh, you've talked about before, and it's maybe too long to get into, but ultimately... Let's get into it just for, a, just for a second. I think that there's an important distinction to be made. I mean, I think that Vice did... Vice was similar to the extent that when they made the move to video, they were also, like, they were trying to capitalize on social media clicks to a lot of YouTube. They were very strong in video. And to, to the extent that they had a business model, it was about getting lots of people to watch their videos and sell advertising against it. I would argue that Vice's actual business model was getting wealthy idiots and conglomerates to give them like first millions, then tens of millions, and then hundreds of millions of dollars. And if you look at how they went from when I first knew them in Montreal to their apex to where they are now, it was a succession. Uh, like there was a brief moment where they actually had a business model where they like made more money than they spent and sold ads and gave away the magazine for free. And then very quickly, it was about people being attracted by their brand pumping millions of dollars in and then working their way up the chain until major media companies that were terrified of the future because there were no young audiences coming in and Vice promised them like, you can still function the way you used to. You could have a 24-hour cable channel. You know, uh, you could have HBO show. Like basically the media will work as it did before. All you need is our special magic brand because we can communicate with the youth. And that was able to get them millions of dollars from the likes of Rupert Murdoch and Disney and pretty much everybody who bought that lost money. Yeah. And eventually they hit a wall. So so that's a bit of the Ponzi scheme part of it, right? Like they they, yeah. they didn't really have this loyal audience and they were they were selling it to people who were hoping that that somehow if they bought Vice and Vice created television content that all the kids would would start coming back to television, you know, it was like this weird fantasy, boomer fantasy if you will. Okay, so it is what it is. Facebook has since been, uh, you mentioned this briefly, I think about a month ago, but I noticed it too. I've been in conversations with other publishers in Canada just saying that we have seen a real decline in traffic from Facebook and in the past year, and it happened very suddenly. And the only thing that could really explain it is a change to the algorithms that is now publishing news links. For a while, we're trying to get around it by just putting photos of our news stories up and then putting the link in the comments. And that seemed to work, but, they, you know, they, they figured it out. So the, the traffic 
that the places that I've worked and that I'm hearing from other places that used to come from Facebook, way down, definitely a factor in what's happening to BuzzFeed. And then Facebook isn't like meta, I guess, as it is now, is in trouble itself. I, I was looking at the layoffs there because they laid off 11,000 people last November, and they say there's 21,000 more. But the investment that they're making in the shift to Meta, uh, there's a great article about this in the Washington Post, just how the company's kind of struggling. And so here we are sitting there saying, we're going to hitch our wagons to Google and Facebook. And Google and Facebook, well, Google, I guess, is okay, but what's happening with Facebook? It may not be there anymore. And I know you love Twitter, but we all know what's happening to Twitter. Even even I have to admit that Twitter, like it, it's it's bad. The experience is just absolutely cratered, and and it is it's it's very explicitly even to his own detriment. It's a war on journalism, and it seems like uh, Musk is willing to absorb tens of billions of dollars of value loss to basically deplatform journalists and make this place a less credible space. As for Facebook, I've been warned by people on the inside to like take with a grain of salt that the layoffs mean that they're in serious trouble. The layoffs are a way of just protecting their quarterly returns and showing profit. And like Facebook is in trouble, I think, to some extent, and people are like checking it less frequently and they're having problems. The differences in the scale, Facebook is a massively successful, lucrative business. They're not going anywhere. But for our purposes... They don't exist anymore. Like, it's not even about, like, guessing from and making inferences from the difference in the traffic. What's the algorithm doing? They've explicitly said people don't like news. People don't like news on Facebook. Oh, I think that's We're showing crap. them less news. That's crap. And people, that's what they've said. Yeah, Zuckerberg has said it. Of course, because they, he wants to get out of, uh, you know, like, these deals that countries are looking for where Facebook, you know, is either taxed or somehow supporting news or paying for it. I have such mixed feelings about that and, and how it's being executed that I, I I can't even go there. But I, I think the point is he's saying that because he doesn't want to be forced into turning over money by governments to news agencies. And, and that's fine. He can still survive off of other content. Like Facebook is becoming much more like TikTok, where they're now, rather than directing you to your friends' posts or to, to people you know, they're directing you to that little video content. And a lot of people are co-publishing on TikTok and Facebook. So, so the medium's yeah. changing. Like it's changing the brand of what it is and how it works. And you're, it, the end point is, you're right, it's not a place to share news anymore. So if you're going to be in this business now, you kind of need to have a discoverable brand. Like I just don't know how, how new people are going to break in. I'm going to suggest there's a silver lining here. I was listening to Ben Smith talk about this. And Ben Smith, of course, was the editor of BuzzFeed News when they were sort of at their heyday and like big scoops in, in American political media and is now running a company called Semaphore. And what he was saying was he's back to like destination websites. He's back to reading like mm -hmm. the Huffington Post main page and, and the Drudge Report, you know. So certainly we're, we're seeing like way less traffic from Twitter, Facebook, social media. Maybe it's good. I've been thinking about this a lot in a couple of different ways. And one, one way I've been thinking about it is that the news was never really for everyone. You know, hard news was like 10% or less of the adult population was interested in reading like hard news. And so the people who were actually providing a service that they want and value and will pay for was always a small minority. And social media put news in front of people who just had never really been news consumers before. And then the news started to cater to them. And the discourse started to reflect that change in the readership. 
And I don't know, as undemocratic as it sounds, like it it maybe like ultimately was a bad thing overall. Because I, I have been seeing, Karen, like a lot of smug responses from people at newspapers, basically. Like, oh, you know, you thought that BuzzFeed Canada and Huffington Post Canada and Vice Canada were going to save the Canadian news industry. No, it's back to us, legacy media. The, like this proves that we're the only people who can do this job. Hate the smugness, but I don't mind the sentiment in a way, like just the smugness of it. It's the wrong takeaway to me. And, you know, the the, the conclusion that this takes is uh, compatible with their interests, which is there is no business here. The only way that this is going to go forward is, of course, with a combination of subsidies from government, Google and Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. And we're the only people who can do it. And that's the conclusion that people are reaching. So I think that's the wrong takeaway. And I, I think we need to just change the way we think about news itself and the problem. This whole practice of thinking about it as like mass media and these slick offices and major investments from these big American companies. Like, yes, that's dead. And I don't think anyone, like, what is what do these changes and these closures mean? No one, like, there's not going to be another one of those anytime soon. So therefore, we've got to retrench and go back to our, like, really failed newspaper chains and find a way to prop them up. I'm not so sure. Here's my analogy, Karen. I think we got to stop trying to think like tech entrepreneurs and journalists need to start thinking more like barbers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Stay with me. I cannot recall there ever being a crisis in the barbershop industry, you know? Like there's like there's never been like to my knowledge a speculative bubble where venture capitalists were pumping millions into the barbershop sector, <laughs> you know, and then artificially underpricing haircuts to gobble up market share and artificially raising the cost of barber talent. Like that's never happened. There's been no wild overvaluations or exits for barbershop brands. There have been no like mass barber layoffs as a result of bad bets. There are no barbershop deserts in regions in Canada, like communities where you just can't get a haircut. Like it's kind of amazing. The number of barbers available to cut people's hair seems to always magically align with the number of people in need of haircuts. That should be our model. <laughs> That's the industry. And it's similar because like they provide a service. We don't provide a product. We provide a service. People wake up once a month or so and say, I need a haircut. And a barber is never too far away to give them one in exchange for money. I think people wake up every morning and say, hey, what's going on? And we journalists can help them with that and charge them for the service. The big difference is you got to humble yourself because nobody starts a barbershop and, and invests, I don't know, $10,000 with a dream of exiting for $10 million. You start a barbershop with the dream of cutting hair, you know, and, and earning a living and providing a valuable service. And it actually is a business that doesn't work very well when you consolidate it into a national chain. It works a lot better when you just have your friendly neighborhood barbershop. It's resisted that kind of consolidation, supercuts notwithstanding. And I feel like one of the major lessons of this is it's not that big tech and social media and speculation and media, that's a failure. Okay, that's one of the lessons. But there's a wider lesson if you expand your lens to like the last 50 years, which is that communities were much better served by local newspapers. And the consolidation of those international newspaper chains was a disaster. And if we're going to rebuild, it shouldn't be to rebuild back into national chains. It should be to rebuild with small barbershop-sized news shops as the goal. What do you think? I think a few things. I think you're right. I, I think that niche media is kind of the way to go. I think that smaller media that isn't really concerned with paying off shareholders, because you said, first of all, 
I'm never going to think of news clippings again in the same way after that barbershop thing. But what you said something so important that like I it's just been driving me crazy for years. There was a point where we stopped talking about news as a service. And in all the newsrooms, people were talking about as a product. News is not a product. It's a service. It's an essential service. And I think if we realize that people will pay for an essential service, but the idea that it's going to be some building it into a big business with shareholders was probably the wrong way to go or not sustainable. Yeah, I think that we've misdiagnosed the problem because people have been trying to solve the problem how can we fund news at the scale that we are used to? How can we find a new, like whether it's events or selling coffee or gambling or making video clickbait or make, there've been so many schemes and they've all had as the proposed solutions to get news back to where a paper in Toronto could have a correspondent in, in every country or, you know, every, like all over the world and, and five different news organizations would have microphones at the same event. And we were just like, mass media, you know, how can we get back to where we were? That's not the problem we're trying to solve. The problem we're trying to solve is how can we give people news coverage? And if you humble yourself to the actual problem, there are solutions, but they're not sexy. Like the news business should be boring. It's like, I watch succession in these shows. Like, it's, it's like, how do we get into the space where people are like buying and selling and closing and opening? Like the news business for a long time was just this like dull predictable, year-over-year year predictable profit margins. It should be boring. It, but but we have to accept that we're not what we were. we're. We're not mass media. And maybe that's better for the news. The news should be interesting. The news business should be boring. <laughs> okay, good. I'm glad you said that. The news should be interesting, yes. Karen, this episode is brought to everybody by Rotman Executive Programs. I know that you have participated in uh, ongoing education even well into your professional career. It's like it's never too late to go and learn things and level up in your career. Rotman now has an ESG designation. An ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance Issues, which define the economic landscape, I'll have you know. People can go and get this designation, and it really opens up their career options. They can learn about land back, diversity and inclusion, climate change. These are increasingly important things in organizations, and they have hands-on training preparing people for the designation exam. Over the course of a combination of in-person and online sessions, you will learn how to align business models with responsible practices, unlock innovation opportunities, mitigate risk, and ensure long-term success. How does that sound? Oh, that sounds very interesting, Jesse. <laughs> Visit uft.me slash ESG. That's uft.me slash ESG to learn more. Karen, we duly note things on this program, things that have been in the news that people might have missed. And I have a news item that I, that I think more people should know about. Okay, what is it, Jesse? I quit. I, 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 I quit my job as editor-in-chief of Canada Land. It's okay, though, because I'm staying on as publisher and host, and I found somebody incredible to take that job. No way. Editor-in-chief, yeah. Who's it? Karen. <laughs> I can't, like, tell you how thrilled I am to let everybody know that you are going to be our new editor-in-chief. It's, like, super exciting, amazing news. I'm like, I, I've never been happier to share news. I, I share a lot of bad news. It's nice to be able to share some good news. Welcome to Candleland. You're starting in July. I'm starting in July. Yeah. And you know, I, I was thinking about this, like in a way you're the publisher. So you're kind of my boss, but I'll be editor in chief. So that makes me kind of your boss. 
It makes you very directly my boss when we're doing things like making shortcuts. And this is going to be a little bit complicated, but I have a duty to not use my publisher status in any way, shape, or form because it's a little bit complicated. And, you know, like like any newsroom, the publisher should stay the fuck out of the editorial process, right? As publisher. But the publisher in this instance is also the host. And that could get blurry. And so I need somebody who I know I actually would be willing to, you know— Listen to and 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 let me ask you a question, Karen. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's a question that you've been asked recently by a bunch of people. I don't know. <laughs> like, what on earth makes you think that that guy will actually relinquish editorial power and step back? Have you heard of founder syndrome? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> well, first of all, because Archie Mann says so, I asked him, and he said that he was convinced you were ready to do this. But second of all, I'm a native auntie with a large wooden spoon, and it's got your name on it, Jesse. <laughs> um, it's already taken the wrong turn. <laughs> and we were talking about Facebook earlier. So, like, on our Facebook relationship, now it's complicated as our Facebook friendship relationship. <laughs> You know that I've admired you for years, and I, when I first met you, you were you were like giving me the business for lapses in in our coverage, and we're right about it. But I always kind of got a sense that you cared about what we were doing here. I feel really good that we are worth your time and effort. There's a lot of honorifics. You got a lot of honorifics. <laughs> the main thing is like the journalism, and I know that you care about it above everything else. So I can't think of anybody better to lead our newsroom. So thanks for doing this. Thanks for saying yes. <laughs> Oh, uh, thank you. I'm I'm so excited. I can't wait to start. Do you have anything to duly note, Karen? I do. Okay, and this is very controversial. I can only do this because I'm actually in between jobs and not working at Canada Land yet. You already look worried. No, okay, so <laughs> when you are in journalism, you are never supposed to talk about your kids. And so I've been in the business for 20-odd years now, And I have never lifted up my son or told people to do stories on them, except for, you know, he did something really great recently. And so I broke the rules and I actually called over to APTN. So I'm duly noting that APTN did a story on my son, Zachary Liberty, who just took gold medal in a weightlifting competition. And he benches 252, he deadlifted 424, and he squatted 330 pounds. That's my boy. (laughs) Another reason not to mess with you. (laughs) Yeah, my son's a beast. (laughs) He's a fine young man. I've had the pleasure of meeting him. And uh, what knockers you must have for this uh, accomplishment. That's uh, that's amazing. I don't know that people need to know that, but uh, what the hell? <laughs> That's the one time I will take advantage of, you know, my my journalism career to to promote my son. We're done now. <laughs> All right. Duly noted. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars and I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? 
Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Survivors of a day school in Burns Lake, British Columbia, have long awaited a Canadian human rights tribunal into their allegations of abuse. This has been a long time coming for some of these survivors. What do they hope the outcome will be? Yeah, you're right. It it has been many years of uh, waiting to tell their story. They hope that, uh, of course, the commission chair, who's called a member, will find in their favour that the RCMP did do a half-hearted investigation, as they allege, and believed that they were lying, uh, that, of course, the, the particular teacher they've accused uh, could never be an abuser. They feel that the RCMP brought those biases into the investigation. So, Karen, there's a story that your former newsroom, APTN, is reporting on there and that we've reported on over the years and that the Globe and Mail and the TAI and everybody else has reported on for 10 years. And... I think that listeners will be familiar with this, a lot of them, when I talk about the allegations of child abuse from one individual who is now a very powerful and influential man who many people say, at this point there are dozens of people who say that when he was their teacher at the Immaculate Day School for Indigenous Kids in Burns Lake, he subjected them to racist verbal abuse beatings, according to one accuser, sexual assault. And listeners will know who I'm talking about, I think, when I talk about journalist Laura Robinson, who brought the story to people's attention in the Georgia Strait. I can go over these details, which I have shared many times, but what I can't do is something that I've done every time we've reported on the story in the past. I can't name the guy because this Canadian Human Rights Tribunal that is currently taking place in Burns Lake, 10 years after the story first broke, there's a publication ban, but I've never seen anything like this. It's like a post-publication ban. It's a very strange situation to not be able to name somebody whose name will immediately come up on Google searches for this topic. And I feel very strange as a journalist, like withholding information that is very much in the public domain at this point. Have you ever encountered like a post-publication ban before? I don't know if there's other instances of this, but the only thing that I could think of is there were times when the police would release the name of a minor because they were searching for them either, you know, as they were involved in the crime and then retract it 
later. I've seen that happen once or twice, but I, I, I've really never seen anything like this. And I was listening so closely with my now newly attuned Canada land legal ear as you were talking, because we're not allowed to say the province in which the person lives. We're not allowed to say anything about where they've worked. And we're not allowed to say anything about where they used to live. And so it's not just the name. There's these other restrictions on it. And we have to be very careful, even though you're quite right. Kathleen Martin, who we just heard reporting for APTN, did a whole documentary on Laura Robinson and this whole situation. Yeah, we're not allowed to say any of that stuff. But the one exception is we are able to place them as somebody who worked at the Immaculata Day School. So I'm being diligent. Don't worry. I know you're not here yet, but uh, I appreciate that you're still taking responsibility for whether I step over the line here. We report the news within the boundaries of the law here, but we don't have to like it when like these just absurd rules. Like it's already too much with publication bans in Canada and we can already, we have limitations that I don't think reporters in the States have or a lot of other places. But this is a, this is a new one because this guy is a very well-known person. I should note here that both APTN and the TIE fought this uh, anonymity order, I guess this post-publication ban, and they lost. Yeah, but good for them for fighting it. But this is not him on trial here. Mm -hmm. This is a hearing in which the RCMP have to answer for their investigation. Right. Let's focus on that here because the RCMP are accused of failing to conduct a basic investigation before they close the case on this suspect. So according to the human rights complaint, they did not even bother the Mounties to interview witnesses who were in a position to corroborate the allegations. The chief of Lake Babine First Nation came forward to say that he's not a witness. It happened to him, that this guy abused him too. The Mounties didn't bother to interview this guy, says the complaint. They did not bother to get warrants, production orders, to get records from the church that would tell them whether or not the suspect even worked at these schools at the time of the alleged incidents. Like that seems like a pretty basic thing in investigation, time and place. Could this have happened? Were you there? The complaint accuses the Mounties of bias. They asked one of the complainants again and again, would she take a polygraph test to prove that she wasn't lying? 11 times. 11 times. They never asked the suspect if he would take a lie detector test to you know, back up his alibi and his denial. And then it gets even wilder. The complaint against the Mounties like, suggests a reason why the Mounties were biased. It turns out that the Mountie who was assigned to investigate, this Corporal Mackey, his boss had a noteworthy connection to the powerful man accused. And I can't get into details because of this publication, Ben. But here's what happened, because the complaint includes a quote that the Mountie who's investigating sends to his suspect. Like, this is the guy he's investigating. And he sends an email to the suspect that says, you know, I was about to let everyone know that this case was closed and that we're not filing charges. But unfortunately, he writes... I'm now told a new investigative team will be looking into this. I realize you'd like to see this resolved. I'm very sorry for the delay. He's apologizing to the suspect that the suspect is going to continue to be investigated. So it seems to me like they've got a case here. Other emails between senior Mounties, internal emails between the Mounties, they're worrying to each other like, wow, if we file criminal charges, there are a lot of organizations that are going to be seriously embarrassed. And then they don't file criminal charges. So 
The suspect, A.B., is not on trial here, but this is the closest process that the accusers are getting to justice, like like a, a shot at justice. And in the decade that's passed since the story broke, people have died. Accusers against this guy have died mm-hmm. waiting for this day. And here the day is, and we can't say his name. Yeah, so I think a few things about that. Like one of the reasons that we can't say his name, like the reason given for requesting the publication ban was that it could cause harm. You know, I I think it was reputational harm, but also emotional harm. And yet all the people who are involved in making the accusations, who claim to be victims, they're all named. They, They aren't under a publication ban. So it's a little weirdly uneven that way. Isn't that a thing? Like usually in a sexual assault case, it's the victims. The court's usually very careful about protecting the identities of the alleged victim. Not that they're asking for anonymity. In fact, they like they've signed affidavits. They've come forward. Their names are associated with this. So this is a human rights tribunal case, and they are asking for some sort of damages, right? And they're asking for them from the RCMP, not from the accused, who we cannot name. Mm-hmm. But mostly what they're asking for is they're asking for the RCMP to reform itself. Like nothing's been proven yet, but they're saying based on the fact that we think that systemic racism was a factor in how this was investigated or not investigated properly. And here's the evidence that we're putting forward that we think shows that we weren't treated uh, fairly or entirely like reasonable human beings in this process, and the RCMP didn't do the job that it was supposed to do, here are some recommendations of how we would like the RCMP to fix it. And I, I think it's really interesting. It says to me, as like sort of this impartial person witnessing this, that this is like a moral stand that I think they're taking. I think that so much of this is about listening to people when they speak up. And I know that you're not on our dime yet, but can I can I ask you to help us with an editorial call? Because we had we had a conversation here about like at any juncture where where we can, these accusers, some of whom have died, died asking to be heard. And we can't name him, but we can name them and we can hear them. This is a content warning situation. And one of these clips involves somebody describing in general terms sexual assault. How do you feel about us listening to the accusers now, briefly? I'm okay with it. I think if somebody's come forward and put their story on tape, they want it to be heard. All right, let's do that. Karen, here is one of the accusers, Kathy Woodgate. She died in 2021, but this is a clip originally broadcast on the CBC by Duncan McHugh. It was really like a nightmare. But former student Kathy Woodgate is one of a number of students who remember nuns and staff doling out physical and verbal abuse, particularly her former gym teacher. He would target the slowest people, and I was one of the slowest ones, so I got hit most of the time. And here is a clip that I will, again, include a content warning that uh, this discusses sexual abuse of an Indigenous child. This is an account from Beverly Abraham. He started with my legs and then putting his hand up and he put his hand where it wasn't supposed to go in my privates. So those are people who wanted very much to be heard and there are many more. 
I'll say, in case I didn't say it before, that AB, the accused, uh, denies any wrongdoing completely and has not been charged with any criminal offense. It's the first time the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal has been held outside of Ottawa. This is happening in Burns Lake, BC, and then it's going to move online. I think the legacy here is something that, that we've seen play out time and again with residential school survivors. It's, it's taken so much time for these stories to come forward. And I think this case before the Human Rights Tribunal is so important in just showing how the systems themselves have kept residential school survivors from ever getting justice. I mean, clearly the, the case has to go forward and hear whether the RCMP did a proper investigation. The long history of mistrust of RCMP being the people who took the kids in the first place to go to residential schools, of being always on the front line when First Nations people are struggling for land rights and for their other human rights and being the people that you face. There's so little trust there. And for the people who did talk to them and tell them their story to then find that when the original investigation by the RCMP was reviewed, that there were so many holes in it that it wasn't done properly. The, the RCMP had reviewed the RCMP's investigation and found that it wasn't sufficient. It's even worse than that. And here, I think it is worth making the distinction that it's a relevant one. These are not residential school survivors. These were the, the day schools. And oh, sorry, yeah. That's okay, because I think it's it's relevant. But that's a bit of a loophole that a lot of people who were who suffered a lot of the same abuses that residential school survivors suffered, but did not find themselves entitled to the same recognition or compensation the day schools are a part of this history that we need to reckon with as well. But you bring up an amazing point, which is like very relevant here. There were protests in Burns Lake and the same RCMP officers who were tasked with investigating historical childhood abuse allegations of these people, some of those same people, the accusers themselves, were involved in the protests and there was a heavy-handed violent police response. So the same cops who were like investigating these people as protesters, uh, who they're, they're up against in that context are the same cops who are like trying to determine such a personal, intimate thing, this, this historical alleged trauma. And this is the cop who's on the case trying to determine if you were abused as a child. Like that's messed up. That is shortcuts for this week. Karen, thank you for joining me. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, Jesse. Looking so forward to joining you and the team. I'm so excited. Yeah, me too. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. I can be emailed at jesse at CanadaLand.com. I read everything that you send. Karen, where can people find you? Uh, well, so long as Twitter exists, I am on there. If you can spell my last name, you can find me. This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Ejofor. Theme music is by So-Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you to pay for journalism. And as a supporter, you'll get premium access to all of our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You get our exclusive newsletter. You get discounts on Canada Land merch. You get invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. More than anything, you will become a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. You will be keeping our work free and accessible for everyone. And you'll be helping us grow in exciting new ways. Join us now. Click on the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. 
Thank you for supporting Canada Land. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.